Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. Among the many court proceedings Donald Trump is facing... The one that's been taking place in New York this week stands out for several reasons. It's round two of the defamation suit brought by the writer E. Jean Carroll, in which Trump has already been found by a jury to have sexually assaulted Carroll in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room in Manhattan in the 1990s. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Yeah, that was Trump in the infamous Access Hollywood tape made public just before the 2016 election. The jury found that in this case, Carol didn't let him do it, kissing and more, but he did it anyway. Many women have said the case feels so personal to them because of things they and people they know have gone through. But apparently Trump thinks it will help him, not hurt him politically, because he showed up in the courtroom this week to make disparaging remarks about Carol and the judge right in front of the jury that will sit in judgment of him. And the case apparently didn't move Nikki Haley enough to even acknowledge the sexual assault verdict when she was asked point blank about it by a voter in a New Hampshire town hall last weekend. I mean, first of all, I haven't paid attention to his his cases, and I'm not a lawyer. All I know is that he's innocent until proven guilty, and when he's proven guilty and he's sitting in a courtroom, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You've got investigations on Trump and Biden. Interesting way to try to beat Trump in New Hampshire, say you didn't even know he was actually found by a jury to have committed sexual assault. The case this week is very Trump 24, too, after the first jury found that the assault happened and he defamed Carol by maliciously lying about her. He just kept repeating the same things about her, including on television. So she sued him for defamation again, and they are back in court. Andrea Bernstein has been in the courtroom covering this for NPR, and she joins us now. Many of you know Andrea Bernstein from her Trump, Inc. podcast that she did for WNYC, the Will Be Wild podcast series uh, about January 6th. Her book, American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power, and more. So, Andrea, hello. Welcome back to WNYC. Hey, Brian. Great to be on with you. Can you remind everybody of the basics of this case? Would it be right to say that the Me Too movement of, say, 2017, 2018, which was partly touched off by the Access Hollywood tape the year before, prompted Carol to go public with this allegation of Trump assaulting her from the 90s? I mean, it's hard to say exactly. That was certainly in the cultural zeitgeist at the moment. Uh, She had been working on a book Uh, called uh, What Do We Need Men For? and had gone on a cross-country road trip to talk to women. And in the course of this, says that she sort of came to a personal reckoning that she was talking to all these women and they were telling her their stories. She felt under an obligation, she said, to tell her own story. So she put her account of what happened to her in the Bergdorf Goodman's department store in 19, in the 1990s. In her book, uh, an excerpt appeared in New York Magazine. And within hours of that, Trump started 
defaming her. He called her a liar. He said, I didn't know her. He said she was doing this just to sell books, just to get publicity, just to get attention. Uh, he sort of threatened her, saying she should be very, very careful. She was treading into potentially dangerous testimony. And he has not backed off that position, even until this week, uh, where he sort of re repeated that same uh, defamation. Now, I'm calling this defamation, even though he is on trial for defamation, because so for complicated legal reasons, there was a second lawsuit she filed. She sued Trump for this act of defamation while he was president. And because he was president, he had his Justice Department argue that it should defend him. It went to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers New York. They threw it to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, which covers Washington. That's the case that's on trial this week. She filed a second case under a New York law, which allowed adult survivors of sexual abuse to sue for civil damages for a year, beginning in Thanksgiving of 2022. That is the case that went to trial last spring, in which a jury found that Trump had sexually assaulted and or was liable for sexual assault and had defamed E. Jean Carroll. So that's the case that already happened. So yep. the judge in this so case has said, finding. we know there was sexual assault. He actually, even in the legal paper earlier this month, called it rape. And he said, we know there is defamation. The issue is, what are the damages going to be? So that is what's at issue in this trial, which was for an earlier incident of defamation, but is coming to trial later. Right. Okay. So that's the timeline of two different cases and what law enabled them to go forward at um, what different times. So I get that that's a little wonky, um, but we don't even have to necessarily focus on that timeline to understand uh, what's at stake here and what Trump is, has already been found liable for. Why did the ju judge, by the way, uh, to cite something you just referred to, say that Trump had been found to have raped E. Jean Carroll. I thought at the time of the original finding, the jury found sexual assault, yes, but not rape. Is that wrong? So that is n correct. <laughs> um, I, that caught my attention too. Uh, and I, uh, you know, made some inquiries. I did some reporting on it. And what I heard from a number of legal experts is that because of what happened, which is that there was testimony that, and you know, it's pretty graphic, we're talking about the former president here, but that he, there was this lighthearted conversation. He said, hey, you're the advice person. Hey, she said, hey, you're the real estate developer. They had sort of known each other from the New York celebrity world, if you will. And he said, I'm buying a gift, help me buy a present. They end up in the lingerie department and they have this joke about there's a piece of lingerie and he says, you should try it on. And she says, you should try it on. And then Trump, according to the testimony, steers her over to the dressing room, takes her inside, pushes her against the wall, shoves his hand inside her and then shoves his penis inside her. That was the testimony. And the judge has the latitude to describe that as rape. So that's what he said. So he was trying to send mm -hmm. a message mm -hmm. to the plaintiffs to say, or to the defendant saying, don't try to deny this. It's been established. 
you're not, that is off limits for this trial, that we are not relitigating that. We are looking at the question of damages. And the jury last May awarded Carol $5 million in damages. How did they arrive at that number? I mean, <laughs> unclear how a jury arrives at that number, but there was a percentage of liability assigned for the sexual assault and a percentage for a second act of defamation. The one that I described earlier was while he was president. So from the Oval Office, if you will, sort of speaking broadly, from the press scrum outside his helicopter, uh, he made these remarks about her. The second time was in October of 2022 when he put out a statement on his social media platform, Truth Social, which he called her a con job, et cetera, et cetera. That was the act that came up in last year, in last May's trial, and yet last year's trial. This mm -hmm. one is over what he said from the White House. And the argument is that is potentially much more serious because it was the first act. So the first time you lie about somebody is the time you really can damage their reputation, according to the legal theory. So it could be potentially much, much more than $5 million in damages for this trial. Interesting. Now, Trump's defense has argued that Look, Carol was making a serious accusation against him. You've just described how serious. And he was denying it by calling her a liar. A person has a right to basically say they're not guilty and their accuser is lying. Why was that found to be defamation? Well, denial is one thing. And the plaintiffs are arguing that character assassination is another thing. So saying uh, she's a con job, she's a whack job, she's not my type and repeatedly saying it over and over again, the argument is, contributed to a real decline in, in her income and her reputation. She testified earlier this week that, you know, I mean, she was a sort of light-hearted advice columnist. She would talk about how she has this email for Ask E. Jean. She had, if anybody doesn't know, she had the longest running uh, advice column in Elle magazine uh, in the history of Elle magazine. Hmm. And she has this Gmail address, ask, e ask E. Jean, and she said people would sort of, you know, write to her asking her about problems, or they would say, hey, Eugene, my husband and I are back together. Thanks for your advice. So that's the kind of level of um, communication that she was getting pre-Trump's attacks on her. Post it, she was being called a whore, a hag, uh, an ugly thing. Uh, people said no one would want to rape you, or people said you deserve to be raped, you deserve to be murdered. That each time Trump would attack her, that if the plaintiffs have been arguing in court this week, there was what Eugene has called a flood of slime released about her on social media, to that, to her email. Uh, and she would get these messages over and over again. And her argument is, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, my credibility is everything. And now, because, she argues, of the actions of former President Trump, then president, her reputation has been irreparably damaged. And she's had the mental suffering of having to live with these constant death threats and mm -hmm. disparagement, which gin up, the plaintiffs are saying, every time Trump says one of these things. And those instances of disparagement and intimidation and threats and, and slime, uh, as she characterized it, actually brings me to something that you reported happened during jury selection this week. Um, but listeners, I want to invite you in here first. Any questions or thoughts about the Trump E. Jean Carroll case? 
anyone with a personal story of what this case has touched off for you or a political analysis of Trump or, for that matter, Nikki Haley, which we'll get to in the context of this case with Andrea Bernstein, 212-433-WNYC, Andrea, who's been in the courtroom for NPR, 212-433-9692, call or text. So one of the things you described from this week's case is the jury selection process where prospective jurors were being questioned, as is routine, but Trump himself was sitting there scrutinizing these jurors. Can you describe some of what that was like, especially for the prospective jurors involved? Um, so <laughs> we obviously have not been in communication with the jurors. Um, so I'm, you know, I can only say what it looked like it was like for them. I mean, mm -hmm. I just to sort of back up a moment. Um, Donald Trump is not required to be in the courtroom. This is a civil suit. He is under no obligation to be there. He did not attend the first trial. And I had thought, you know, unlike the business fraud trial, which I've also been covering, uh, this is easy to understand what happened. And I had thought, you know, why would he want to associate himself with these, you know, I mean, it's been established that he, by the preponderance of the evidence, that he assaulted her. So why would he want to go sort of put himself in a, in a room with her? Uh, but that is what he did. And he showed up during jury selection. And the jury selection, you know, some of it was the normal questions that juries get asked, which, you know, probably many listeners have been on jury duty. You know, do you know the defendant? Do you know any of the lawyers? Do you know the plaintiff? Can you be fair? Um, this jury was also asked, where do you get your news media? Uh, do mm. you believe that the 2020 election was stolen? Uh, three, I believe, jurors said yes to that question. Uh, they were asked, do you believe that Donald Trump is being mistreated by the legal system? A couple raised their hand. He sort of put up his hand, too, when that was said. But he would sort of, there were like, there were jurors in the jury box, and then there were jurors in some of the benches behind the defense table, and he would swivel around and really, really, really look hard and intently as the juror, at the jurors as they were answering their questions. Yeah, and I ask because um, you say Trump isn't required to be there, but a defendant certainly has the right to oh, observe yeah. jury selection, and that applies to Trump like anyone else. But I'm thinking about how judges and their staffs and E. Jean Carroll herself, as you described, and others have become targets of these public insults, even death threats, when they say anything critical of Trump or hold him accountable for things. Do you think that Trump was looking at these potential jurors, some of whom are now actual jurors, in ways intended to intimidate them when they got seated? I mean, it's hard to know exactly. The judge advised the jury to remain anonymous. And one of the things he said that was so striking is don't even tell your fellow jurors your real name. Wow. Consider using another name so that you cannot be tracked down. So certainly that is something that is in the milieu of all of these trials. And similarly, once the trial began, Trump was there and making comments from the defendant's chair 
during other people's testimony. I think that's the part that's probably gotten the most press this week, but I'm going to ask you to describe it because that by itself is pretty extraordinary. So can you give us some examples of that? Right. So uh, Eugene Carroll started to testify on Wednesday, and she is giving her account. And uh, there's a break. The jury goes out of the room, and her lawyers stand up, and they say, Your Honor, to Judge Lewis Kaplan, we can hear the defendant saying, it's a witch hunt, it's a con job. We think if we can hear this, the jury can hear it. Please admonish him to stop. So, so that happens. Uh, and then there is a second instance just before lunch where the lawyers for Eugene Carroll say again, we're hearing these remarks, and the judge turns to Trump's main lawyer, Alina Haba, and says, uh, I don't want to have to consider excusing your client, but I will. And then he turns to Mr. Trump, and he says, and this is a, a, a bit of a paraphrase, but he says to Mr. Trump, uh, you would like it if I uh, had to excuse you. And Trump says, I would, I would. And the judge says, you can't control yourself. And Trump says to him, neither can you. So that is how (laughs) things ended before lunch. In the afternoon, even after that, uh, there was a point at which, so some listeners, and you may remember that there was a town hall meeting by CNN the day after the verdict of the previous trial in which Trump continued to, he said, I swear on my children, and I never say that, which is true. I have not heard him swear on his children very often. Uh, I don't know this woman, uh, you know, con- continues. She's a liar. She's a con job, et cetera. And I see Trump watching the video of himself saying this and nodding his head, and I can hear him say, that's true. And I'm maybe about, I don't know, 10 feet away. The jury is 10 feet away in another direction. Likely they can also hear it. So he is saying these things right after court on uh, Wednesday, right before he went to a a rally in New Hampshire, he held a press availability where he repeated these charges, which Carol's lawyers then paid in the um, in the courtroom yesterday. So. I mean, the judge has already so told the jury. So there may be a third round of defamation yes. charges. Well, but, all this can go to damages, and that's what's at issue in this I trial. I see, I see, and which is the point of this particular case, right, is how much they should award E. Jean Carroll in damages for all these things that Trump has continued to do. But about his outbursts from the defendant's chair, what are the rules? Do you know what the rules are? Can a defendant do that while somebody else is testifying? I mean, n- no, <laughs> right? The rule is you have to do what the judge says. You're supposed to sit there in silence. So, you know, the defendant is supposed to speak through their attorneys. So, yeah. but now I've seen Trump, you know, sort of just disregard that twice. Uh, he did it previously and during the closing arguments of his business fraud trial, where he also just started to speak without the court's permission. So, so if Trump was perceived as being obnoxious, and in a way defaming Carroll yet again during his trial for doing it before. He was doing this in front of the jury that will decide his fate on this in terms of damages. Could could you tell at all how the jury was perceiving him? This is, you know, 
always hard to know. I mean, it does seem to be a studious jury. Many of them have notepads in their hands and are taking notes. Um, it is sort of movingly, uh, you know, a, a jury of his peers. I mean, there's a, you know, former transit worker on the jury. There's a respiratory therapist. Uh, you know, there's sort of working New Yorkers that are going to be passing judgment on the ex-president. I think what is really important to keep in mind about this is, so each time Trump keeps saying this, it goes to the question of punitive damages. And the, the question that Carol's lawyer said is, how much is it going to take? How much money is it going to take to get him to stop? So say there's a huge verdict, as there was for the recent Rudy Giuliani separate defamation trial. Uh, you know, what happens then? I, what it appears to be happening with Donald Trump is they, are, they have a political strategy, which is to discredit the jury, which is to make him look like a victim, which is to uh, gin up the sense of grievance among his supporters. They may, I mean, they've already lost on the issue of he defamed her, he assaulted her by the preponderance of the evidence. So the question is, is how much money? So their strategy appears to be aimed at discrediting the verdict and using whatever the jury right. decides to get yeah. more support for his presidential campaign. Yeah, I guess that's how it looks to me. Too. I mean, you have covered Donald Trump every which way over the years. You hosted the podcast Trump Inc. about the intersection of his business interests and the public interest. You've covered him as a politician. You wrote the book American Oligarchs about the Trump and the Trumps and the Kushners. Now you're covering him as a defendant in court. My guess, and I think this is what you were just saying, would be that Trump doesn't care at all how this defamation case turns out. Everything he's doing is aimed at building political support in New Hampshire in the short run to defeat Nikki Haley, or just more generally to press the grievance button again because he thinks it's good for his reelection prospects. That's what you were saying, right? Well, I mean, I think it may even be darker than that, which is, you know, sort of as a businessman, Trump was very keyed in on, uh, you know, electing judges. So controlling, getting judges in that he can control. Uh, you know, he certainly appointed uh, hundreds of judges uh, to the federal courts while he was president. But I think the argument, and it goes back to this Nikki Haley uh, quote that you were pulling at the top, what he's trying to do is delegitimize the courts as a way of settling what is true and what is the rule of law. And he has already been so effective going after other institutions, for example, journalism as a sort of independent arbiter. And by projecting to the world that no matter what happens, no matter what these judges and ju juries decide, they are wrong, you undermine our system of justice. Because who is to settle it then? If you say a jury of your peers, what a jury of your peers does, what a judge does, I don't care is it means that no one can check his power. And that is right. the sort of ultimate message that I think he is sending with all of this. Yeah. Um, Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker, who's going to be one of our guests next week, wrote a piece about Trump called Too Big to Convict. You know, and the theory is not concluding that he's too big to convict, but it raises that notion uh, on the theory that back in the financial crisis in 2008, there were banks that were deemed too big to fail. And so the government bailed them out. Trump might be deemed as somebody who is too big to convict. And so that may be playing into the actions that juries take, um, the restraint that judges show, and other people might be even jailed for contempt of court for things that he's doing. 
and things like that. So that's that's very real. And part of the upside-down world we're living in, in that each indictment or a civil suit claim against Trump seems to boost his poll numbers. So imagine how good convictions or large damage awards will be for him politically, even a finding by a jury, which already happened, that he committed sexual assault. So that's part of the upside-down world we're living in. There's a lot more to say about what has already happened in court this week and what we're uh, we're expecting to happen next week as this defamation damage awards case, Donald Trump uh, with E. Jean Carroll um, concludes probably next week here in New York with Andrea Bernstein covering it for NPR. Our, our caller board is all backed up. We'll get to some of you right after this break. And the Nikki Haley analysis piece of this, too. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with Andrea Bernstein covering the E. Jean Carroll defamation uh, damages award trial here in New York against uh, Donald Trump, covering it for NPR. And Ethan in Cape Cod, you're on WNYC. Hi, Ethan. Hey, Brian. Hey, Andrea. Thank you for this, uh, uh, for the show and for this segment. I just wanted to say it, he needs to be jailed. The fact that Judge Kaplan is not jailing him for contempt, it, as you say, it undermines the institution. It makes a mockery of the idea that everyone's equal before the law. He's violated um, decorum, and uh, it, it, it hurts us all. And I, I think any attempt to game this out and say, oh, what would be the political ramifications of jailing him, we don't know what they would be. And that cannot be a consideration. He just needs to sit at least one night in jail. That's, and thank you for taking my call. Thank you very much. Yeah, that goes back to too big to jail. Um, but... What would happen to someone else? I know you're not a lawyer or a legal analyst, but, you know, you cover Trump every which way. But do you know um, what would happen to someone else who is doing the things that Trump is doing in this courtroom? I mean, it's hard to know because Trump is sui generis, right? He's the category of one. Um, I mean, available remedies include he can't come into the courtroom, financial uh, sanctions, uh, you know, there are certainly cases where people are severely disrupted and they have to spend a night in jail. I mean, I think that, you know, the all of these judges are mindful that they don't want to make, they don't want to play into Trump's hands and make a mockery of their proceedings. Uh, I mean, you know, of course, I don't know what's in their head. I would just say that that's how I read their actions. Uh, but, you know, Judge Kaplan, I mean, Judge Ngoran, uh, even though, you know, Trump really attacked him, that was the judge in the, the state judge in the civil fraud trial, is the judge, um, was pretty lenient. He, he really gave Trump quite wide latitude uh, in the courtroom, outside of the courtroom, uh, and that case had no jury. Judge Kaplan, Lewis Kaplan in the federal court is pretty strict and severe. Uh, You know, while we've been, um, you know, sitting in the courtroom before the judge comes in, the the court security officers have come in and said, you know, don't whisper, don't chew gum, uh, don't, you know, violate any of the rules uh, or bring your your toothbrush. You know, Judge Kaplan will, you know, cause you to spend a night in jail. So um, it's unclear what, you know, could or would happen. Larry in Woodside, you're on WNYC. Hi, Larry. Uh, yes, uh, 
I wouldn't dispute the uh, uh, Trump's uh, poor behavior, but the, the presentation of the actual guilty, the he said, she said side, uh, I don't think you've ever looked at it from the other side of the fence because your 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 coverage is always entirely uh, uh, biased. But Larry, Larry, in this case, it wasn't us. It was a jury who considered the evidence as to whether he committed sexual assault, and a jury found that he did. Is that enough for you, or is it not? Uh, no, it's not enough, because uh, just yesterday on the news, there was a case of a jury convicting uh, some a fellow, by, I think, by the name of Ruffin, to 20 years in prison for a murder he was uh, uh, didn't commit after investigation. But have you ever looked That's at right. the other side of the argument? Well, of course, we look at the other side of all arguments in dispute situations. Thank you for your call anyway. Um, but, I mean, there's a great example, Andrea, I think, of the denial that people are willing to engage in when it comes to Donald Trump. Um, he, he cites a case of a false conviction, a terrible false conviction, that where the guy was finally exonerated yesterday for a murder he didn't commit in Brooklyn a long time ago. Um, and sure, those things happen, and they're terrible. Uh, look who just became the chair of the Public Safety Committee in the city council yesterday, right? Yusuf Salam, who was one of the Central Park Five, the exonerated five. Um, nevertheless, all these Trump supporters would jump to the conclusion that because false convictions happen, he's falsely convicted. Uh, it's not convicted. It's found liable is the term in this case. I, I just think it's a really great example of people being in denial, no matter what a jury does, no matter what, you know, 12 juries in 12 different cases do when it's Donald Trump. Well, the clip you played at the top of the show of, you know, Nikki Haley, one of the contenders for the Republican presidential nomination, saying people are innocent until proven guilty. I mean, this is a civil trial. It's not a criminal trial. But it sort of elides the fact that he was found liable. And when you have that kind of messaging from prominent people, it has an effect on the populace. And I think that's what we're seeing here. So can you do a little Nikki Haley political analysis here? You've been a national political reporter in the past, for people who don't know Andrea's past, traveling the country for WNYC in a presidential election year. Um, I'm going to replay that Nikki Haley clip from the New Hampshire town hall last week where she was asked to comment on Trump as someone, again, found by a jury to have committed sexual assault. And here's what she said. I mean, first of all, I haven't paid attention to his, his cases, and I'm not a lawyer. All I know is that he's innocent until proven guilty, and when he's proven guilty and he's sitting in a courtroom, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You've got investigations on Trump and Biden. Deflect, deflect, deflect maybe even feigning ignorance, or maybe she really hasn't followed the case. Uh, but here she is, the strongest challenger to Trump for the Republican nomination, and a woman in that context, no less, not wanting to go on record about her opponent's sexual assault, finding by an actual jury, any more than she wanted to go on record saying slavery was the cause of the Civil War. Can you offer any political analysis of that? So, I mean, I obviously have not been on the trail. <laughs> I've been in the courtrooms. 
Uh, but I do think that there is this pattern in the Republican Party of n of not wanting to take on Trump. And you can draw a line from that to the sort of increasing, increasing strengths of his position. I mean, there have been a variety of reasons presented uh, from the political don't want to offend his supporters because if you start doing well, you're going to need to get some of them to win the presidency uh, to, you know, something that we heard very troublingly in the aftermath of January 6th, that there were members of Congress that were afraid for their families, uh, that they would be harmed uh, if they uh, criticized President Trump. Uh, I mean, you know, it's clear from what's been going on in the courtroom this week that when President when former President Trump directs his ire at you, people respond. That is uh, without a doubt true. But it is part of the phenomenon that has allowed the denialism to grow. And, you know, she says guilty. This is not a criminal trial. So that frames the argument in a misleading way. My guess at this point regarding Haley is that she sees the writing on the wall and has already given up trying to be Trump for the nomination, and she's not actually winning, uh, running to win in 2024 anymore. She's running to raise her profile and position herself for 2028. Ron DeSantis, too, by the way. And they figure the path to the 2028 nomination depends on keeping Trump's base happy enough by not really saying a lot of obvious critical things about him this year. Does it look like that to you? I mean, it could be. It's hard to know. I think one of the problems with that analysis is that each time Republican politicians take a path, Trump's strength grows. And then they have more to contend with down the road. I mean, just look, I know you've played this tape on your show many times, Mitch McConnell in the impeachment trial saying, you know, we have other venues to determine Trump's guilt or, in or innocence. We should Meaning be the legal system regarding legal January system. 6th. Exactly. So... But, you know, what is the effect of that? I mean, had Mitch McConnell voted another way, Trump, you know, would be ineligible to be running for president. So I think that's one of the problems. By not confronting him directly, he just draws strength. Now, in fairness, you know, you look at what happened to the former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, he did attack Trump, and his campaign went nowhere. So it is very unclear what the options are. The sort of, you know, table has been set by the actions of the Republican Party up to now. And that is what all of the Republican opponents of Donald Trump are contending with. Yeah, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who? Who dropped out of the presidential <laughs> race this week after coming in 11th or something in Iowa. Milta in the Bronx. You're on WNYC with Andrea Bernstein. Hello, Milta. Hi. I am so happy you are on always. Um, I guess this is my first time calling in, though, because oh, I think that one of the things that we need to really take a look at is, yes, there's there's tremendous amount of denial around Trump, but um, with his base, um, you know, he's a demigod at this point. But the overarching concern for me is the misogyny that is so readily accepted in our political system, both by men and women, and the lack of any real forward movement that, uh, is, that extends, for lack of a better word right now, you know, grace to these women when they stand up and say, yeah, me too. 
Yeah, Milton, thank you. Thank you for being a first-time caller. Call us again. And I think that can um, plant us back in the courtroom for the rest of the narrative after we've taken a few listener calls. Andrea, Trump was not there yesterday for the cross-examination of E. Jean Carroll. How did Trump's lawyer try to discredit her? Well, he was there. Let me just say he was. It started on um, Wednesday, so we did hear part of it. I mean, this was another issue that, you know, Trump has been harping on, which is that it was his mother-in-law's funeral. And inside and outside of the courtroom, his lawyers and he made a great deal of how unfair this judge is not to suspend the trial during his mother-in-law's funeral so he could attend both. Uh, He did, by the way, argue to the judge he needed two days off for the funeral. Then it was uncovered that one of those days he was actually going to be in New Hampshire campaigning. Uh, I, but, I agree with him, though, by the way, about that one. About the funeral. Don't is, you get uh, a day off from your trial for your mother-in-law's funeral? I mean, come on. I mean, it is unclear to me why the judge you know, doesn't want to do that. On the other hand, this case was filed years and years and years ago. Trump has taken it to every court that he can to delay. And I think the judge you know, is fed up. Now, is that yeah. a justification? Probably not. Um, But, you know, that is the sort of context for it. The cross-examination is that E. Jean Carroll has gained Twitter followers, she's gained supporters, uh, and that she's become more famous in a way, so that what Trump did and said didn't really damage her. And Trump's lawyers have been arguing, in fact, that she sort of enjoyed the publicity that came from the publication of her initial accusation and the follow-up. I mean, it's very difficult in a defamation trial to um, make a defense that doesn't sort of repeat the initial offense. And that is the needle that they are trying to thread. Uh, You know, they're trying to say she should have mitigated her own damages uh, and that it is not as sort of bad as she's making out. Yeah, in terms of the financial damages to her. And I know you got to go in a minute, but next comes... Trump's case for the defense. Will he take the stand himself or just mutter from the sidelines or present any witnesses? So he has said that his defense will be him. Uh, His lawyers have not said, uh, no, excuse me, they're also going to put forward um, Carol Martin, who some people may know is a former uh, Channel 4 anchorwoman in New York, uh, who was uh, an outcry, uh, one of the people that Carol told at the time that it happened. Uh, there was evidence that came in the last trial about how Carol Martin had written some text messages sort of, uh, you know, saying something to the effect of, you know, E. Jean is, you know, going too far with this, something like that. Uh, so they have said that they will present her as well as the former president. And as to what he will say, I mean, the the plaintiffs have said, look, what can he say where he doesn't... Um, you know, sort of repeat his initial defamation. And his lawyers have said he has a right to say the context of when he was in the White House and he was asked about this, what the questions were, how he responded. Uh, So that is what they say he is going to testify. Um, You know, now having seen Trump in person in two trials, uh, the judge, you know, the judges say, control your client. The lawyers say we will. And then Trump says whatever he wants. It's hard to imagine him not repeating his themes that it's a fake, it's a con job, it's a hoax, the judge is out to get him, everybody's out to get him. We shall see. That testimony could come as early as Monday. Once Trump testifies, uh, the case will probably rest soon after. There will be instructions, and then it will go to the jury. We will see if he puts himself under oath. 
Andrea Bernstein, covering the E. Jean Carroll, Donald Trump case for NPR. Andrea, thanks as always. Thank you. Great to talk to you. And to your listeners. You bet. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Stay with us. More to come.